Would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 8? Psalm 8 in your Bibles today. Psalm 8. This morning, we'll be looking at this passage, first five verses of Psalm 8, in a sermon that I've titled, Looking Beyond What Is Seen. Looking Beyond What Is Seen. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 5. In just a moment, we'll read these verses. Does everyone know what a stereogram is? No? A stereogram? No clue? I'm sure if I describe it, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Stereograms, they may have maybe called something different as well, but they are pictures or paintings that contain hidden three-dimensional shapes or pictures within them. Uh, the idea is, and I'm, I'm sure you've all done this, where you, you stare at a picture and you stare at it and focus at it enough that the three-dimensional <laughs> hidden figure or shape or picture within that picture is revealed. Now, I have... Do you all know what I'm talking about now? Okay. I have never successfully seen one of these hidden images while staring at these stereograms, which leads me to conclude that it's just one big lie. Um, you're supposed to stare at the picture. You're supposed to stand close to the picture. You're supposed to allow your eyes to unfocus slightly, which, what does that even mean? And then the hidden image will appear. The Bible has a word for this, and it's called witchcraft. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the frustrating part is that I fall for these every time I come across them. We don't have one in our house, but every time we're in a store and there's one of these stereograms on the wall, I fall for it every single time. And I've never seen the picture in there. Everyone else around me supposedly has no trouble seeing this supposed hidden image, but I never see it. It doesn't matter how close I stand to the picture. It doesn't matter how much I move back from the picture. It doesn't matter what angle I look at the picture. It doesn't matter if I'm squinting at it or if I'm keeping my eyes wide open or if I give it angry looks. Nothing seems to work. It is one of the most frustrating things because every time I see these pictures, I so want it to be true. I, I, I want to see the sailboat. I want to see the tiger jump. Whatever it is, I just want it to be true so bad. But it never works. And this is, again, what has led me to believe that it's nothing but a big lie. I, I'll walk by one in the store and I'll stop and think to myself, don't waste your time. You're going to be frustrated. It's nothing but a picture of a fancy rug. That is literally all that it is. It is only going to make you upset. And then I start to walk away, and then another voice speaks up in my head. But what if this time, what if this is the time that you actually see it? What if this time you find out that it's not a big lie, and it's not a big conspiracy where everyone tries to make you feel like you're the only one who can't see it, and you actually see it? And then I get sucked right back in. Say what you want. Think what you want. You'll never convince me otherwise. Those pictures are fake. I don't know what these so-called artists were thinking. If you want to draw a picture of a sailboat, draw a picture of a sailboat. It, just 
paint it that way. Don't hide it in a picture of a fancy rug and tell me that there's a hidden picture within the picture of the fancy rug. Makes no sense to me. We didn't come here to talk about paintings. But I do want to talk to you about looking beyond what is seen. In Psalm 8, we read about David trying to describe the glory of God as he is beholding the night sky. He cannot see God physically in the heavens, but he sees the greatness and the majesty and the power of God, and he's almost unable to express in words the sheer glory of God in what he sees. In Psalm 19, which is what I read a few moments ago, in the first three verses, the Bible states, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now David, he looks up into the night sky over Israel and is absolutely amazed at the majesty and the glory of God that, as Psalm 19 says, is declared by creation just by its very existence. And the only words that, we, that he can muster are here in verse number 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And this shouldn't surprise any of us because the glory and the majesty of God is far beyond what words can ever be spoken. In our entire lifetime, even with the opportunity to behold the glory of God through nature and through creation and through everything that is in this physical world, we don't even catch a glimpse of half of the greatness and the glory of God. As Psalm 19 stated, all of creation is full of God's glory and is just emanating and pouring forth this glory of God just by its very existence and how all things it talks about have their, their perfect place and just perfectly are, are in order and stick together. It's incredible to think about. And it becomes quickly evident that God is present in all things at all times because his handiwork is on display for all to see. You may travel to places where no human has ever traveled, but still, there, God's glory is going to be revealed, is going to be declared. No matter if we ascend to the highest heights or even descend into the lowest depths, the glory of God is still there revealing God's excellence. Everywhere and in every place, God is seen and is clearly at work, and that is not limited to even earth alone. For David goes on to say in Psalm 8, verse number 1, again, says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. He says it's not just limited to what we can see and what we get to interact with here on earth, but he says it is above all this. It is beyond what we can see here on earth. No matter how we look at it, God is immensely magnificent and he is seen and his glory is seen in everything around us. We are told by the prophet in, in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, it says, Thou even thou art God alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Psalm 8 is then a psalm of praise to God, because none but God can fully know his own glory. Does that make sense? Even if at everything that we can see, 
And there's quite a bit that we can see, but there's so much that we cannot behold about God. Only God can know the full extent of his glory. We see the glory of God in everything around us, but God only knows the fullness of his glory. David evidences this truth as he really struggles to put into words the glory of God that he is beholding in the night sky above him. Look at your, look at your Bibles and follow along as I read verses 3 through 5 here in Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. As David is looking upon the night sky over Israel, he's recording these words. These were not the words of a professional astronomer. These were the reflections of an ordinary person who was recognizing his small role in the grand scheme of the universe. David, at this, at this point, had no knowledge of this vast universe and the billions of stars that are within this universe. David had no knowledge of the fact that light Light from the nearest star in our universe and, and the billions of stars that within it. He had no idea that the light from the nearest star traveled at a rate of 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. That is how fast light travels. And that based on the distance between Earth and our nearest star, it would have taken Four years for the light to reach Earth that came from the nearest star, traveling at a rate of 186,000 miles per second. He had no idea. Even with the information that we have today, it is nearly impossible for us to contemplate such a distance. Four and a half years for light to travel from the nearest star to Earth, going at 186,000 miles per second? That is unbelievable. We're blown away when we realize that the circumference of the earth, all the way around, 25,000 miles. 25,000 miles all the way around the earth. And light can travel completely around it. Seven and a half times in a single second. Imagine that. Seven and a half times light can travel around the 25,000 mile circumference of the earth. That is unbelievable. It gets even more astonishing when you try and calculate how many times light can circle the earth in a single day. Let alone how many times light can circle the earth in four and a half years that it would take from the light to travel from the furthest star to where we are here on earth. Imagine if we started looking at stars that were furthest away from earth, because that's the star closest to the earth. Four and a half, four years it takes for, this, for the light of the star, the closest star, to get to us. Imagine if we looked at the furthest star in the galaxy, stars that are yet to even be discovered. David had none of this information. None of this information as he's looking upon the night sky over Israel, as he's declaring and just speaking about the glory of God. He had none of these calculations as he's looking up in the night sky, and yet he's overwhelmed with the little information that he knows. He is overwhelmed at the magnificence of the heavens and the relative insignificance of his own personal life. And as David gazed upon the night sky, he's forced to ask the ultimate question about his own existence. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Look again at what it says in verse number four. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? What is he? 
as he sees how small he is in this vast, vast universe, you might have thought that he would have concluded that he was virtually nothing. An insignificant little blip on the radar screen that is present one moment and then just gone the next. But the conclusion he comes up with is quite the opposite. Notice what he says in verse number five. It says, For thou hast made him man, for thou hast made him, made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. David expresses that God has crowned man with glory and honor. That God has given man a high view of significance. God showed immense favor to such a tiny little part of his creation. What made David reach this conclusion in verse number 5 though? What made him reach this conclusion based upon what he says in verses 3 and 4? Again, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? He says, God, in all of this greatness, which I'm able to behold, and don't even have all the information that people are going to have in 2022, but in what I can see, wow, I can't even fathom the greatness of who you are and the glory that is on display here, and what are we on earth that you would care about us, that you would even visit us, he says. And then he comes to this conclusion, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. Wow, we're pretty great. This is his conclusion, right? If we're looking at the progression of logic here, in our mind, when we got to verse number five, we'd probably say, we're next to nothing. We're so tiny, we're smaller than tiny. But David says, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. Looking up and beholding the moon and the stars in the night sky makes him feel incredibly small, and rightly so. And that is why he asked the question in verse number four. But by the time you get to verse number five, David has made quite the leap. One that doesn't seem to make sense based on the visible evidence. The reason David came to this conclusion in verse number five is because he's able to look beyond what is seen. David could see more than what could be seen with his naked eye. He may have been looking into the night sky and, and observing the moon and the stars and, and all the other planets that are up there, but he's looking past all of these heavenly bodies to the one who set every single one of them in the heavens and ordained their place there in the beginning. Look again at verse number three. He says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the key to this verse are the last four words, which thou hast ordained. These four words show us how David was able to ask the questions of verse number four and yet come to the conclusion of verse number five. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul, he speaks of how God has revealed himself through nature and through creation. I want you to listen to what we're told and what we read in Romans chapter one and verse number 20. It says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, when you break down what the Apostle Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, it is very similar to what David is saying here in Psalm 8. 
What Paul says there in Romans chapter 1 is almost as surprising as what David says. And then the conclusion he gets to when he comes to verse number 5, Paul is acknowledging the invisibility of God. Again, he says, for the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, he says, are clearly seen. That doesn't make any sense. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Paul is acknowledging that there is a characteristic, there is an attribute, there are things of God that are invisible. Invisible, but he says, that are being seen. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I'm smart enough to know that invisible things cannot be seen. That is why they are invisible. So why does he then speak of being able to see the invisible things of God. Paul is speaking the same way as David. And he is able to see, able to, he's able to do as David did, to look beyond what is seen with the naked eye, to see God indirectly, if you will. And this is what we refer to as mediate revelation. Mediate revelation. Mediate revelation involves a communication or it involves an unveiling that takes place through some separate medium. Now, we do this every day. We don't even think about it. When we're listening to the radio, when you're watching the television, when you're on your cell phone, when you're reading the newspaper, you are using immediate revelation. We receive information that we call news without us being actual firsthand eyewitness accounts. We're watching the news on the television. We are listening to the news over the radio. We're reading about it on the front page of the newspaper. We're having a communication with people on the other end of the phone without actually being face-to-face and having news passed from one person to the next or seeing it happen with your own very eyes. This is what we do every single day, and this is what's referred to as mediate revelation. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. This is what David is describing here in Psalm 8 where he's looking beyond what is seen. He's seeing things indirectly without actually seeing them with his eyes. When we look at the night sky, we aren't looking directly at the face of God, but we're looking at the handiwork of God. Look again at verse number three here in Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. David says, the heavens and everything above us is all created by God. Let alone, I mean, not to mention everything that we're living in here on earth as well. But he says, the heavens are your handiwork. you created by your fingers, he says. Everything that is up there, God has instituted, God has ordained, God has created. And what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20 is that looking at creation, the invisible things of God in creation, he says, makes visible the invisible power and deity of God. And God is so incredible that he has made himself visible to all all of his creation. Every person who has ever lived knows based on the visible evidence of creation that a supreme being has created all these things. That one with ultimate power And majesty and glory has set in order all the things of this universe. God has made himself visibly known to all men. Every person who has ever lived knows, knows that God that exists, who has created all things, and all people are aware of this immense God's power 
that he is a God who is transcendent and holy above us. Now I know, I know that there are people who claim to be atheists. Hogwash. Nonsense. There is no true atheist. The Bible even tells us this in James, that the devils themselves don't even believe in such a foolishness that there is no God. People can claim what they want to claim, but Romans 1 makes it very clear that a lack of knowledge or a lack of information or a, a, a rejection is a willful decision of each person's heart. There is no true atheist. All those who deny the existence of God are making a willful decision based on the evidence that they see around them. They're choosing not to believe it, not that there's not enough evidence to support such a thing. God is perfectly clear and has made himself perfectly clear in everything that is around us. His eternal power and Godhead are on display in all of nature and all of creation. Though all people receive this firsthand knowledge of God, firsthand, all will not readily acknowledge it. Listen to what we're told later on in Romans chapter 1 and verses 21 to 23. It says, because that, when they knew God, so God is making himself known. The power of God, the deity of God is on display flat out in all of nature and all of creation. No one can deny this. And it says, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We might watch actors and even professional athletes on television, but there's a big difference between seeing someone on television and actually meeting someone in person. What Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1 is that the real person of God is truly known through beholding nature and through beholding his creation. But the problem is that in the case of God, we drastically distort our knowledge of God by replacing God with an image that we've created on our own. And this is what he describes in Romans chapter 1, which is basically idolatry. This is the reality of God being replaced with a counterfeit. We distort the truth of God and we reform our understanding of God according to our own preferences because we don't want to accept the overwhelming evidence that there is a real God out there who has created all these things and he is transcendently holy and above everything else that he has done because no one else can replicate what God has done. We don't want to accept that, so we distort the truth of God and we make a new God or a new idea of Him through our own personal preferences, which leaves us with a God that is anything but holy. It's not that we fail to see God in everything around us. It's that we refuse to believe what we know to be true based on what we see. It is not an intellectual problem that we're dealing with here. It is a moral problem and a problem with dishonesty. Listen to what we're told in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 25. It says of these same people who are looking at the visible evidence of God, His power, His Godhead, and they're choosing in their hearts to reject it. It says of them, it says they've changed the truth of God into a lie, and they've worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul describes an issue here with dishonesty. As people who know better, he says who willingly and purposely replaced the worship of the one true God with the worship of created beings and created things. Think back to David here in Psalm 8. As he's staring up at the night sky above Israel, 
He wasn't fascinated about all the stars and the many different constellations to the point where he is led to worship the stars or worship the constellations or worship the moon. Look again at what it says in verse number three. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. He's not worshiping these things. He took in the beauty of the heavens, of the moon and the stars, but understood that the true beauty and the true magnificence of the heavens was not in the moon, was not in the stars, was not in the various constellations that he might be able to see, but in the God who created them and set them in their perfect place. This is the difference between godliness and paganism. Pagans choose to confuse creator with creature. And and they, they attribute all the glory that is due the creator to the creature. The truth of the matter is that people don't want to acknowledge God in anything. In their hearts, they cannot deny that God is seen in everything around them, but they have willingly chosen not to acknowledge Him, and they offer praise to all that God has created instead of to the one who has created all things. And what Paul is telling us is that the truth of God's holiness is not some secret that only the religious elite can discover, but it is, in fact, visible for all to see and for all to know. It's not that God's holiness and that God's majesty and His glory that is seen in creation can only be seen by those that are eagerly and honestly searching for it, but that God is clearly seen by all. The problem is that the knowledge of God that we see through creation is not something that we gladly sleep, that we gladly um, receive and that we gladly embrace. Our sinful nature, it wants to reject everything, everything that we see and understand about God in nature, especially God's holiness. It is characteristic of the reprobate mind that Romans 1 talks about, there we won't, where we don't want to retain the knowledge of God. We see it, we can't deny it, it's overwhelmingly evident, but we don't want to accept it. Man in general seeks to change that which is holy into something that is unholy. It is the rejection of God's holiness, it is the rejection of God's majesty that leaves us with minds that are darkened. The moment we refuse to honor God as God, our entire view of life becomes distorted. Look back at what we see in Psalm 8. Before David ever speaks about the moon and the stars, he shows us that his mind is where it needs to be from the get-go, giving honor to God as God. Look again at verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. David shows us here that the glory of God is far above any glory of man or any other part of God's creation. In fact, whatever glory is found in any part of God's creation, which he even mentions in verse number five, says, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. Any glory that is found in any other part of God's creation is directly from the hand of God. The question that David asks in verse number four, it demonstrates that he understands he understands man's proper position in comparison to creator God. And that, that is why he is pleased to honor God. That is why he is pleased to acknowledge the truth of God that is seen in every part of God's creation. 
So as much as he's amazed at the moon and the stars, David lifts his eyes beyond the glories of heaven and he rejoices in the glory of God that is revealed through these heavenly bodies. This, this is not common, though, with modern man. Man in general prides himself with modern science's advancements of knowledge of the external world. We have much more technological advancements than what David had at his disposal. And our capabilities today far exceed what David would have ever experienced. Our view of the world around us and even the world above us has greatly increased that it would seem that we have a greater display of remarkable glory than anyone in history before us. The things that we're able to see with telescopes and modern advancements would essentially have us just basking in more of the glory of God than what David ever could do just by his naked eye looking up into the night sky above Israel. We should be relishing in more of what we can see about God based on some advancements that we have in technology, but that's not the case. Rather than mankind growing increasingly interested in God, we're growing increasingly indifferent towards God. God has given us this world, which every aspect of it, as Psalm 19 says, declares His glory. It is given to us for our enjoyment, and it's as if we're walking around wearing blindfolds, unable to see God's glory. It's not that God is denying Himself from us and He's shielding us from ever seeing His glory. It's that we're willingly choosing to reject what we know to be true and what we see around us. We're choosing to wear the blindfolds and then we're stumbling our way through life all the while cursing the darkness. This goes right in line with what Christ taught that men love darkness rather than light. We're creatures who prefer to live in darkness than to enjoy the warmth of the sun and the light that it offers. No matter how much we deny it, God's glory is all around us and God's glory cannot be missed. Man is doing everything he can to, to, to not only fail to stop and not smell the flowers, but we're also ignoring the one who created the flowers. David declares in verse 1 that God's glory is seen in the heavens. And then he declares in verse number 3 that God is the creator of the heavens. Look again at what he says. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And then verse number 3. When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. He says, Lord, your glory is seen in the heavens. You're the one who's created all these. You're seen in all of it, he says. It's all there because God is the one who has created all of it. And it's remarkable to think about all the glories that God has done. He shows us here just how awesome our God is. That in all of it, in every aspect of it, God is the one who is in charge. God's glory and His holiness, they're inseparable. God's glory is the outward manifestation of His holiness. But we need to see it. We need to see it. The Bible speaks of those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. This isn't speaking in terms of the normal senses of seeing and hearing, but in the ability to see and hear the truth that lies beyond what is seen and heard that is blurred by sin. As a family, we try to go for a walk just about every day. And just in the neighborhood around us, as much as we can, we try and go for a walk. 
Uh, we really enjoy hiking, but we don't always have time to get in the car and drive to go for a hike, so we settle for a walk around the neighborhood. But I always feel that, and maybe you found this true as well, that when you're out on a hike, you're more perceptive to the subtle nuances of nature, more so than when you're just out for a walk in your neighborhood. For instance, we have a, a particular spot that we've gone on, on many hikes at, mostly because it's, it's easy enough for the kids to walk on without them having to stumble over their feet. But it's made it easy for us, and the thing I love about it is the time that we spend just paying attention to some of these little, uh, little, little nuances in, in creation. We noticed, it seems, more about everything that's around us. We notice the little differences between the many different trees that are out in the woods. We notice the particular texture of the different types of bark on the trees. We notice the specific colors that are highlighted in the trees and even in the leaves themselves. We notice some of the, the strange angles in which the tree trunks have grown. I remember there's this one tree in the spot that we like to go where the branch literally goes up and does a 90 degree turn this way, almost as if you know, it's an arm just hanging off of the tree. It's the strangest thing. We notice the, the different size and the different shapes of the leaves and, and all these little subtle things that we otherwise don't pay attention to when we're on a walk around the neighborhood, even though in many instances, they're all still present here as they are out in the woods when we're out on a hike. I feel that when we're just out for a walk, we're thinking about a million other things that we don't pay attention to the beauty of the creation that's all around us like we would when we're on a hike and just disconnected from all the busyness of life. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told about the beauty of God's holiness. Now, even as we, in our Exodus reading, we've looked at the garments that God designed for the priest and even for the high priest, we read this in Exodus 28 and verse number 2. It says, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. In other words, there is a clear, significant relationship between what is holy and what is beautiful. Now, we're used to thinking in terms of relationships probably between goodness, things that are good and things that are holy, and even things that are truthful and things that are holy. We can see the relationship between good and holy and truthful and holy, but we don't always think about the significance between the relationship of beauty and holiness. Let me explain it this way. We may throw around the word good, without really thinking about what we're saying. But Jesus made it clear that there is only one who is good, and that is God. The standard of goodness is found in God. Thus, the relationship between goodness and holiness is pretty significant. They have to go hand in hand. Everything that is good finds its roots in God because God is the author of good. Everything that we might consider good is held against one standard, and that is the standard of God and His goodness. If it doesn't match that, then it's not good. That is very clear from Scripture. When we think about truth and holiness, the Bible also teaches that God is the author of all truth. Everything that is true, therefore, flows directly from God, and it also reflects God's character. The reason this is so is because God sees all things from the perspective of eternity. You and I 
can only see the things that have been directly revealed to us in the present. Everything that God reveals to us in the Bible is consistent with what he has revealed to us in nature. We therefore conclude that God's truth is also holy. Truth and holiness are joined together in perfect harmony. And we also see the same with regards to beauty. No matter how we look at it, beauty is rooted in God's character. All the complexity, all the unity, all the diversity on the simplicity in nature, it all finds its origins in one creator, God. The works of God's hands bring such perfect harmony even in the diversity. So many different trees just out here on the parking lot. Take a look as you're driving out. Pay attention to the road, but take a look as you're driving out or maybe walk into your car, safe for bed, at the number of different trees that are surrounding you in the parking lot. Take a moment to behold the beauty and the diversity which all find its origin in God. He is the one who has perfected all of this. The idea being that God knows everything that there is to know. He, he has set everything in its perfect harmony and perfect beauty. God's perfection, it applies to all of God's attributes. God's power is perfect because God's power has no weakness or even the possibility of becoming weak. God's, God is perfect in wisdom and knowledge. He is omniscient, we say. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know. Therefore, there is nothing that God can learn. Some people like to suggest that God's omniscience, the fact that God is all-knowing, is limited. Can you imagine that? But there are actual people, theologians even, that believe that God's omniscience is limited, which is completely ridiculous. The idea being that God knows all that he can know. Therefore, there are things that God doesn't know, which is, don't let that thought come into your mind because it's completely false. They suggest that God doesn't know the future, that God knows everything that he needs to know and can know, but there are certain things that God doesn't know like the future. But there is no such thing as a limited omniscience because limited omniscience is not omniscience. You're not all-knowing if you're not all-knowing. It's not perfect, and God is perfect. Everything about God, his love, his wrath, his mercy, his grace, all of it is perfect. But not only is God perfect, God is immutable. Meaning God is eternal and God is unchangeable in his perfectness. God didn't become perfect over time. There was never a time where God wasn't perfect. There will never be a time where God is not perfect. God is eternally perfect. And David understood as he's writing here in Psalm 8 that God is perfect. And that is why he came to the conclusion as he's staring up at the night sky and gazing at the stars and the moon. He didn't praise God for the creation. He didn't praise God for the, for the stars and the moon. He didn't worship the creation over the creator. He didn't even praise God for making him, man, the crown jewel of his creation. He didn't praise God for the strength and provision. David praised and worshiped God for his holiness. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. David looked beyond what is seen to behold the holiness of God that is seen in everything around us. I pray that as we go through our lives, as busy and as chaotic as they may be, that we'd be able to do the same. That we'd be able to look beyond what is seen to see the holiness of God in what is unseen. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would 
speak to each and every one of us here today, Lord. I know that there's a lot that we've mentioned here this morning with regards to your holiness, Lord, and, and the fact that you are visible even in those things which you are not physically visible. Thank you for being a God, Lord, who loves us so much that you have made yourself known to us in every way. Lord, I, I know that how you've revealed yourself, your eternal power in Godhead, has done so that all men are without excuse, and yet there are still some, Lord, who are trying to find an excuse not to choose to believe. Lord, we know that a day is coming when all these folks will be held accountable for their willful decision to ignore the overwhelming evidence presented to them. And I pray that that not be the case for any of us that are here today. I pray that every single one of us here today not only are looking at the evidence of you around us, but are receiving you as the Son of God, as the one who is the author of creation, the author of our lives, of our faith. And Lord, in that we're coming to you in faith and trust, believing that you are sufficient for all things, especially for our salvation. Lord, may we look to you, even at times, Lord, when it's hard to see you. May we see you in the clearness of your glory and your majesty and your holiness that is seen, Lord, through all of creation declaring your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.